Live from the 607, it's the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour, where we're talking movies, TV, comics, and more. Join in the conversation on our social media with the hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome back to another edition of the ODPH podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour with brand new theme music from Shout at the Robots. Uh-huh. I'm your host, Ken. I'm joining me in studio as always. It's the co-host. It's Padawan J. Hello, hello, hello. Folks, we have a lot to recap because now con season is officially done for the ODPH crew. I finally got some sleep. Thank God. Exactly. My voice is somewhat returned to yes. 90%. So, hey, I will take it. And there's been so much going on in the land of movies tv and comics that we just have to jump right in we want you to join in that conversation use the hashtag odph mm-hmm. hit us up on our social media accounts you can find them at ochoduroparleyhour.com we have a lot to discuss let's waste no more time the biggest story that has been going on has to be joker oh yeah and dominating the box office dominating the box office you got those numbers yeah back? so it, it won uh opening weekend uh, and then it retained its number one uh status over the adams family movie uh looking at an article from forbes.com that was written on the sixth uh the 16th of october uh it earned seven million dollars on tuesday it earned and it had a good day on monday of course being columbus day uh as we record that brings the film's domestic total to 208.936 million making it the most the or excuse me the highest grossing film warner brothers has had out this year uh and now uh, it has earned around 590 million dollars worldwide uh it'll be passing 600 million dollars worldwide at some point today uh and and it will uh past passion of the christ uh which made 611 million dollars back in 2004 uh and it should be passing logan which made 619 million dollars worldwide uh some point this weekend and then it's by thursday or friday and then it could possibly be looking at 700 million dollars by uh week at week's end now ever since the summertime when todd phillips took this movie to all the film festivals and i believe it was the con film festival got the standing eight minute mm-hmm. ovation at the end and won the biggest award it can this movie has had a lot of hype behind it yeah and obviously anytime you deal with the joker and you're talking batman stakes are very high yeah now we're not talking watchman high we're not talking right you know, Spider-Man high, so to speak. And right. obviously if it was a Batman movie, there'd be a lot more focus going on. But ever since the Heath Ledger performance, the bar has been set very high for the Joker. Yeah. I mean, you can take a look at the Mark Hamill performances, Cesar Romero when is on the TV show, right. Jack Nicholson from Batman 89. Right. And I remember when I went to go see the dark Knight when it came out, which wasn't opening weekend. It was maybe a couple weeks after I went to go see it with my brother. You know, we, we were coming out of the movie just blown away by Heath Ledger's performance and, and of course by that point he had unfortunately passed away I remember saying to my brother that day he goes oh I wonder what they're going to do for you know Joker in the future I go they're not going to touch this character with a 10-foot pole for you know probably a decade or more obviously I was wrong but it was that impactful well right Heath Ledger set the bar very high Jared Leto's performance debatable yeah debatable at best yeah but when Joaquin Phoenix was casted in what was going to be a prequel origin story, prequel, however you want to define prequel it. Prequel origin story that like we were being told that it's got nothing to do with the DC connected universe and it's kind of its own thing off in its own universe. And we're like, oh, this could be something. It could be something. And there was a lot of you know various stories going around about what it was going to be based off of. From the trailers, we originally thought it was going to be tying into the killing joke. Alan it Moore's is, classic it is to a degree. It is to a degree in which we will get into details details about that when you give a review but obviously the movie came out made a lot of money at the box office it's been highly debated yeah. yeah 
for wherever you hear podcasts, wherever you talk comic shops about the opinion of the film. So we are going to give our official review of yes. the film. Yes. We are talking spoilers, so if you're not caught up to speed on that, pause the episode, go watch the movie, jump back in, because we are going to start talking in three, two, one. Pad, what did you think of Joker? I thought it was a good movie. Very disturbing. You know, I got to give it some time to digest, but it's certainly in the conversation of one of the best portrayals of Joker of all time. That being said, uh, I probably won't be buying this film when it comes out on Blu-ray, and that's nothing against the film. I don't hate it. It's nothing, but it's just in that class of movies where you're sitting around with a group of friends on a Friday night. You don't exactly sit there and go, hey, you know what? Let's pop the Joker movie in. Right. For me, the easiest way to describe this movie is perception is reality through the eyes of a mentally ill man. This is not your typical comic movie. In fact, I couldn't even really call it a comic book movie. No. There's only little bits and pieces which I think you can reference as being a comic movie. If you go into even if you go into this movie blind, like you don't know if you somehow don't know anything about the joke or anything about Batman, anything about the story. You know, you wouldn't know that it's a comic book movie until the very end of the credits when you finally see a DC logo. Like, that was the wild thing for me was you didn't see the DC logo until the literal end of the credits. Right, which I thought was very smart. Yes. Because they didn't need to really show it and they didn't want to tie it into this. Because this whole movie, you can't really say is a comic movie. You, you can't. Yeah, and this is a movie you definitely got to, like, go watch. Maybe you got you to go watch and, like, really pay attention the whole time. Bathroom breaks, I would not advise just because, you know, you might miss something. You might get lost a little bit. But this is all one of those movies that, like, you got to sit there and digest. Like, I even said to you guys, I was like, listen, I can't tell you what I think about this quite yet after we got out seeing it because I got to digest this. Right. And we've had enough time to do it, so we're going to just jump right into it. So the movie is set in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a lot of places it's 81. Okay. So we'll just say it's in that time period. Obviously set in Gotham City, yep. dark, gritty, beat up. Up, you know it, creek without a paddle. Exactly. It. I don't want to say it looks like hell on earth, but it, it's it, close. it definitely looks like the New York City just really worn down and really beat up. We'll and, say the wheels have come off the bus. Yes, and definitely are all over the place here. Mm-hmm. So as we start out with the film, we see Arthur Fleck, who yep. is Joaquin Phoenix. Yep. And he is a comedian slash clown. A clown for hire. Clown for hire. And he's, you know, obviously doing his business in the city. He's He has a job that he's working for a business that's going out. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, he works for this company that I guess, you know, if you need a clown for some purpose, you know, birthday party, you know, what have you, you can call this company, hire them for however long you need them, and they send them out. Well, this company, we see him at the start. And the job he's hired to do is to stand out of this in front of this business that's going out of business. And he's standing there holding an arrow that says going out of business. Everything must go. And he's standing there dancing and twirling it. Yes. And at this point, some kids take his sign and run. Mm -hmm. So he goes after them. Yep. And goes down an alley and they get the upper hand on him. They hit him in the face and break his sign and they start beating him and leave him just lying for dead in the alley. Yeah. And obviously at this point. He gets back on his bus to go home, and he's trying to entertain a kid in front of him. Yep. And the kid is laughing, but his mother is looking back and saying, please stop bothering my son. 
And at this point, you hear his laugh. Mm-hmm. And I do like in this movie, they did explain his laughter was a disorder. Right. And, and it's uh, according to uh, what I did at some research, because I was curious about this. Uh, it is called the pseudo bulbar effect. And I apologize if I butchered the you know what out of this. But according to Wikipedia, uh, it says uh, the pseudo bulbar effect uh, or emotional in- emotional incontinence is a type of emotional disturbance characterized by uncontrollable episodes of crying and or laughing or other emotional displays. Yeah, so obviously you're understanding this character has a reason he's doing what he's doing and per he's, se. And he's got a card that, you know, he, he tries cheering the kid up and the mother says, leave him alone. And he starts laughing and she goes, is there something wrong with you? And he pulls the card out. And then the one side, it says, you know, hey, I've got a condition. Please forgive me for my laughing. Yeah. So obviously this makes a lot of sense of, you know, why he's doing what sure. he's doing. So then he returns home where he, he's taking care of his mother. Mm hmm. And at this stage, he's really become infatuated with a late-night talk show host, mm-hmm. Murray Franklin, who's played by Robert De Niro, who is in that Johnny Carson-type yeah, vein. definitely inspired by Johnny Carson. Yeah, definitely Carson. I, I would say a little bit David Letterman. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's sitting there, and he's losing himself into the show. Right, and, and he definitely loves the show. I mean, it's it's implied, if not stated, I can't exactly remember, that like he's seen, if not almost if not every episode of the show. Yeah, he's a fanatic of the show. Yeah. I mean, that's the easiest way to describe him. Yeah. And he has this vision where he's sitting in the audience and, you know, he yells to Murray, I love you, Murray. And he's like, I love you too. And then he brings him up and he gives him a hug and, you know, kind of says, you know, what's your name? And, you know, you know, really kind of makes him feel like he's won him over. Right. And then, you know, snap back to reality. And Arthur is sitting there just watching the show with his mom. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense of like, okay, well, he's got big dreams and, you know. Sure. Who doesn't? So when he starts going in with this, he goes back to his work area with his fellow comedian clowns. I mean, I'm not really sure how you call that group. Right. Clowns for hire. Yeah, sure. And he's, you know, everybody's hearing about his attack. Yeah. That happened. And he talks to his boss and his boss is saying, well, you got to return the sign. Right. Yeah. He goes, where's the sign? He didn't return the sign. He tries telling the boss. I don't have the sign. I got, you know, it got busted up when I got jumped and they hit me with it. Yeah, that's bullshit. You know, give the guy his sign back or I'm taking it out of your pay. Right. So at this stage, he, you know, obviously he's kind of scrambling what to do. And another clown befriends him a little bit. Well, he has two that are befriending yeah. him. But one of which is a is a coworker named Randall. Right. Now, Randall hears about, hey, you know, Arthur, you got beat up and, you know, it's so tough out here. He winds up giving him a handgun. Mm-hmm. A snub nose pistol, to be specific. Right. So this is where the movie really starts taking off, and I want to say into a disturbing fashion. Well, yeah, because we're not even, what, maybe a half hour into the film? Yeah. And I remember saying, if, if I didn't say it out loud, I, I thought it, you know, you're giving this guy a gun? What? Yeah, because especially during this time period, too, they show that he's going for psychiatric treatment mm-hmm. at... Arkham State Hospital. Yeah, and, and the psychiatrist he's there visiting with could not seem like she gives any less you-know-whats. Yeah, and he's giving excuses like, Arthur, this is going to be the last time we see each other. Right. And, you know, due to the funding, we don't have any. And, yeah. You know, just gives, like, every single kind of, like, excuse of why he doesn't want to entertain Arthur's, you know, condition. And he's just mentally tuned out. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that appears to be, like, a saving grace at this point is he does – meet a character, Sophie Drummond. Mm-hmm. Dumond. Or Dumond, rather, who's played by Zazie Beetz, who you know from uh, Deadpool, sh- she was Domino. Oh, or, I thought she looked familiar. Yeah, or uh, Fox or FX's Atlanta, where she's okay. phenomenal on. Okay. So he befriends her, and you get the impression that 
you know, she's taken a liking to him and he follows her to the stand-up routine that he's doing or and invites her one, down. And it's one of those weird scenarios because they meet up and they connect because they're both riding the elevator. She's a single mother and she's there with her her little girl. And they're riding the elevator, and the elevator stops. And and she, you know, it, it sounds like the, the the number of issues that take place where they live are very high in number. And she goes, ah, oh, this place just sucks, you know. And and he goes, yeah. And you know, they go to leave, and and it's almost like you know, hey, we made a connection. Maybe we can be friends. And oh, he's already seeing the white picket fence and and two dogs. Yeah. So obviously, there's a discord there that is. Getting a, we'll get touched upon later in the film. Yeah, but you're already seeing these kind of having like these delusions mm-hmm. of like what's real, what's real, and what's not. And this is why I kind of say perception is reality through the eyes of a mentally ill man, mm-hmm. because he's thinking, okay, things are good, but they are not. And as he goes back to work, uh, he's now entertaining at it appears like a children's hospital. Yeah, it almost seems like it's one of those long term like. You know, the the kids have very, something very bad going on and they're going to be there for a while. So he's doing, you know, he's bring he's brought in there to cheer him up and dance. And he's doing some sort of like routine, you know, happy and, you know, a clap your hands type thing where they're following along and he's dancing. He's doing his dance. And what falls out of his pants? The gun. Uh huh. So obviously due to this, he is fired. Well, and he, and he tries playing it off as, oh, it's part of my routine. And, da, 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 da. and the boss goes, you you brought a gun to a children's hospital. Yeah, and the the boss also alludes to the fact that this is not the first incident right. where Arthur has had an issue, not saying involving uh, you know a children's hospital, but just right. in general. Right, and that's the vibe I kind of got off of their first or you know the last incident where you know this about the sign where like he went walking back into the the dressing room or whatever you want to call it, and he almost like did that sigh and then the hunched down thing that like he really dejected that like. It's almost like he can't do anything right. No, he can't. And this is at the point that they, that it almost kind of gets a sense of like, okay, he definitely knows he's in his own way, but he right. can't get out of it. Right. So obviously dejected, he's just been fired. He's getting back on the bus to go home to see, or subway to see his mother. Mm-hmm. And then he's in a weird situation where he's in a subway car and he notices that there are three gentlemen Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll say mid twenty range. Yeah, mid late twenties. Mid late twenties that are being drunk and obnoxious, and they're you know really aggravating a female passenger on the bus. Mm-hmm. And he tries almost like doing the right thing by intervening, and then at this situation, the drunk uh, gentleman, which we later find out worked for Thomas Wayne at yep. Wayne Enterprises, yep. start attacking him. And during this scenario, Arthur pulls out his gun and kills two of them on the subway and one on his way out of the subway station. Right. He gets, he kills the two outright right when he gets, cause he starts laughing and they go, Oh, what's so funny. And they start beating him up and, and he pulled, gets his to his pistol. He pulls out the pistol, shoots the two almost immediately. And as the other one's trying to get away, he gets him in like the, the back thigh area or like maybe down towards the knee and he's limping and he gets off the train and they almost play the, you know, leaning on the other side of the pole. Like, oh, which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to go? And he chases after the guy and he's like so hell bent on killing this guy that it doesn't matter what it takes. Right. So obviously he does this and then he's running away from the scene mm-hmm. and he goes into like a, a bus stop uh, bathroom. Right. And at this point, this is when things get more weird. Yeah. Because all of a sudden he just kind of starts doing this impromptu dance 
in the bathroom. Right, which I read uh, after we saw the movie in like a day or two after. Joaquin Phoenix actually improvised that entire uh, scene in the bathroom. Right, because at first we saw him prior in the film, it was kind of a throwaway scene that he's trying to you know handle the gun and he actually winds up firing it in his apartment. Right. And in this situation, he's now accepted that he's killed these three uh, gentlemen. Right. And it's almost like a, a sigh of relief. Yeah, he's like almost liberated. Bit. Yeah, that he finally feels like he got one up on the world. That's the way I took it yeah. in this situation. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, let's see where we go from here. And the reaction to this is he goes back home, meets up with his mother, and his mother is you know, obviously singing the praises of one Thomas Wayne, mm-hmm. who in this portrayal during the movie, they, he's almost the bad guy. Yeah, he's very standoffish. He's very standoffish. He's very cold. He's very uncaring for the city of Gotham, which we have never seen this side of Thomas Wayne right. portrayed right. in comics or uh, – TV, anything. Yeah, I mean, barring the, you know what's obviously has been going on in um, the Tom King run of Batman currently, but that's a, that's all different story. So this one, uh, Thomas Wayne is on TV and he's condemning the murders. Right. You know, he's saying all oh, these fine upstanding gentlemen. You know, they work for me, and you know, it's an attack on my family, and he's basically you know, insulting. He- Whoever did this, and he right. refers to him as clowns. Right, and he, you know, he even calls whoever did it a coward because, oh, why, you know, I the the report says that he was wearing a clown mask while committing these murders. You know, what kind of coward would hide behind a mask and commit these actions? Which is, you know, funny in certain aspects, given we know what happens to his son down the road. Right. So at this stage, though, it almost seems like this is the spark to a bigger fire. Right. That now there are copycat clown protesters uh right well and it's and and it's interesting because things things were already you know a powder keg just waiting for the match to get dropped but as soon as this happens and you have the three well-to-do gentlemen from wayne enterprise who were murdered it's almost like there's the reason we need let's go and demonstrations start beginning against the upper class and like hey why aren't you guys doing more this city sucks you need to do something right because at this point too Arthur now loses all his funding for um, his psychiatric treatment that he's been getting at Arkham State Hospital. Right. And this is like all just focusing back on Thomas Wayne and just he has now become the focal point of the anger of the city, at least through Joker's eyes. Mm -hmm. And I bring up this point because suddenly Joker has now become the symbol of, you know, rebellion for the city of Gotham. And I'm kind of going, how is a murderer... Now suddenly the inspiration yeah. for protesting and yeah. and you know changing your city and this is where I start questioning the reality of the story we are seeing. Uh huh. This is where I'm going. Okay, there's some focal points that we'll find out later that this is just made up. And as we start progressing with the story, there's more clues that lead on to this. And obviously, at this situation too. He is sitting with his mother, and his mother is obviously defending Thomas Wayne to the death. We find out the history that she used to work for Thomas Wayne. For and, like you know, 30 years or something for like that. For 30 years, and you know, there's just such a, a strong connection with them. And you know, Thomas Wayne treats everybody like family, and you know, he'll save the city. And while he's there with his mother talking about this, he sees uh, Murray Franklin's show. Right. And there's suddenly video of Arthur's stand-up uh, act which he bombed at right yeah which you know he goes to try and do comedy which he has a book and he's been writing jokes and he goes to this comedy club for the first time and and you know opens his book and and 
unfortunately breaks out into one of his laughing fits. And the crowd starts laughing because they think it's part of the bit, but it keeps going, going, going. And he starts telling some jokes, and and they're bad. They're 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 not funny. And you know, and bef- and once his laughing fit ends, he starts telling jokes. We don't know what the crowd reaction is at that point because the music kicks in, and that you know he's invited uh, Sophie Dumont there, you know, and she's she's sitting there, and, and they cut to her who's smiling and laughing and all this, and you're like, oh, this might be going well. But then we cut to Marie Franklin's show, and somebody at the at the cl- uh, comedy club recorded the whole thing. Uh, it didn't go well in like the worst way possible. Everyone was laughing at him because your jokes are bad. Yeah, it absolutely just bombed completely. So at this point, he's dejected because he put Murray Franklin on such a high pedestal. Right, and Murray Franklin just like broke him down and, and made fun of him. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, this ties so much back into Alan Moore's Killing Joke story. You minus everything involving Batman in that story. Yeah, and it's just a, it's the simple concept of one bad instance can just break somebody and break him into arguably becoming the Joker. Which yeah, is, it's a, it's a very scary predicament to if you really want to break it down. But at this point, he's almost got nothing to lose. And he's seeing that he is now inspiring a revolution in Gotham. Right. Which I was sitting just back and going, all right, where the heck is he getting this idea from? But he's seeing that all of a sudden there's now attacks on the upper class. And, you know, he's representing those that never have the chance to rise up. And, you know, almost like just the, the martyr status that he's almost right. looking at himself at. Right. I mean, that was more like one of the more disturbing facts that we've seen. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he's trying to get a hold of Bruce Wayne because he finds out some more history from his mother who's writing a letter to Bruce. Well, she's written several letters, and she's trying to get a hold of Thomas Wayne in the worst way possible. That like She keeps writing letters, keeps writing letters, keeps writing letters, and, and, and Arthur even at one point goes, why are you trying to write this guy so much? Like, what do you, like he hasn't answered any of your letters. And she goes to the bathroom or she goes to bed or something, and you know she's got a letter written and she has but she hasn't said it yet and that's when he decides to open it and she he reads the letter and finds out that according to the letter oh listen i'm dying things aren't going well your son needs you and that's when it starts to click it wait is is he thomas wayne's illegitimate son yeah so obviously this is a very interesting predicament that he does so as he tries approaching thomas wayne he breaks into a, a gala that he's attending and he confronts him in the bathroom. Well, not even before that. Like, he berates his mother for hiding the truth. And she's like, listen, I was in love, yada, yada, yada. He goes to Wayne Manor. Oh, that's right. It happened before this. I, right. I thought it happened after. No, yeah. He goes to Wayne Manor, and he tries to get in the front door at Wayne Manor to try and talk to him. And who does he meet at the front door? Young Bruce Wayne. Uh-huh. So that was already one of those weird moments where it's like, whoa. Like, <laughs> just think of who we're, we got on screen portraying each other. And... and Arthur starts doing magic tricks for Bruce and and tries to get Bruce to use the magic wand and it won't work and it goes all limp and that's when Arthur or excuse me Alfred comes out and Alfred goes what are you doing you need to leave and he goes oh my name is Arthur Fleck I'm looking for Thomas Wayne and and Alfred goes oh you're her son you need to leave yeah at this point he's already dismissing the theory that uh, Penny, who is Arthur's mom, is is planted in his, in there, and he's saying there's more to the story than meets the eye. Right, and there's also that weird facial thing he does. He puts the smile on Bruce's face for real with his yeah. hands, which yeah. I was creeped out to yeah. no end about. Yeah, and then he gets in that scuffle with a younger Alfred, and I'm sitting there going, okay. If you've been following the Pennyworth series on uh, that's been out recently, or you know anything about the history of Alfred Pennyworth, he's like former British. 
Secret Service. Exactly. There's no way he's getting punked out at the gates by uh, Joe Blow. By a nobody like the Joker who has no fighting and he has no muscles and he has nothing. He like, but he punks out Alfred, which is another thing that I'm going. All right, something's not right here with this story. Mm-hmm. But I digress. And then now we jump into where he goes to confront Thomas Wayne. Correct? Well, no, it's not even Thomas Wayne. He, uh, he gets a visit from two Gotham City Police Department. Oh, that's right. Detectives. They're chasing after him. So, yeah. Time. So, yeah, they're still looking for the gentleman or whoever committed those murders of the, the Wayne Enterprises employees. And they're just following clues. And all right, the guy looked like a clown. Let's go to, you know, the, the rent a clown business. And that's when they find out about Arthur getting fired and he had a pistol and He's got some issues and, you know, they're investigating his involvement with the train murders. And that's when they tell him or he finds out that his mother had suffered a stroke and she's at the hospital because they because they went and and started talking to her about uh, her son. Yeah, which I think is another point, too, that if Arthur got away with these murders. Mm-hmm. Why are the police chasing after him? Well, they're just they're just doing their diligence, right. and Making connections and trying to find out what he did. But he goes to try and you know he goes to his mother and he's sitting there in the hospital. And that's when for me it kicked in that oh some of this is not real. Like it's him imagining. Well, that's why I'm saying like when the police are chasing him and he's always eluding them. Right. That's why I'm going okay. Something else is not right here. And I think at this point too, like you say, he goes and obviously he finds out that his mother is not who she says she is because that, at this point this is where he goes confronts Thomas Wayne at the gala. Well and he and that's when we find out that his whole uh relationship with Sophie Dumont is faked because you know there was a scene earlier in the movie where they're at a newsstand and he's looking at a newspaper you know the one of the newspapers about the Joker killings and it's this real creepy looking Joker thing. And when we first saw the scene she was standing there and then there's a, a camera wipe and it was just him there by himself. And then it's a shot of him sitting there you know at the hospital with his mother and she's there patting him on the back and the camera wipes, and she's not there. Right, because at this point now, he's confronting his mom about what happened mm-hmm. and how basically the everything he's been told has been a lie because he gets the, the file from Arkham State Hospital, which he escapes mm-hmm. with, which I do question how real that scene was. But like I said, I'm going to tie this all in together later. Right. But this is where he reads, okay, that his real truth is he was adopted and he was abused um, mm-hmm. by both his mom and the boyfriend, I believe. Right. Yeah, her the, boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Not his father, but just the guy she was dating at the time. Right. And obviously that there's just so much fabrication going on with the story about how everything was you know, made up, that she was really fired by Thomas Wayne, and you know that he wanted that when she started snapping and just going into her own delusions, this is when he cut ties with her and yeah. just basically had her on a restraining order stayed away. And Arthur confronts her now and winds up killing her Mm -hmm. at the hospital. Yeah. Because he is just now descending more into his own madness. Yeah. Because the reality that he thought was real was never real at all. No. So this is when... He is also confront or contacted by the Murray Franklin show about coming on the show because right. he goes, he, this is before everything goes viral. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they, our, our Murray Franklin showed the clip as just to be funny and ha ha, look at how dumb this guy is. But it actually being way more popular than they thought it would be. Yeah. So at this stage, the body count is starting to rise a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is when he's getting ready for his big day with Murray. And he's painting his face in his apartment. And then this is dyes when... His, dyes his hair green. He dyes his hair green. So now you're starting to see slowly the emergence of the Joker persona mm-hmm. more outward than inward. Yep. And while he's doing this, he's visited by his uh, clown buddies, 
Randall and Gary. Gary is the shorter gentleman and who had befriended him when everything was going wrong at yeah. the, the Clowns for Hire. Now, at this point, Randall brings up the point about how Arthur was trying to buy a gun from him. Mm-hmm. And I tie this back into origin, the original story of where Randall gave him one for his own protection because he's right. his buddy. Right. There's more going on with this story than they want us to believe. Right. There's more going on. And even, you know, before he got hurt or right after he got fired, you know, the boss, uh, Randall, told his boss that a different story that like it wasn't oh no that's not the case i didn't give him the gun mm. and, and and arthur brings that up and it's just a whole mess it's an entire mess but at this point he winds up killing randall uh-huh very violently very gruesomely but he lets gary go and we which we all thought he was going to kill him too oh i i was convinced he's like no you can go you're fine i'm like you realize if you turn your back on that guy you're dead and especially you're seeing the memes of the door lock yeah. Because Gary couldn't reach the door lock. Yeah. Because of his stature. And Arthur just lets him go, gives him a pat on the head, and sends him on his way. At this point, Arthur now comes out of his apartment in full Joker persona outfit to the sounds of Gary Glitter, which was more creepy in its own right. Mm-hmm. And you can Google search about why that's more creepy in your own, in your own time. I'm not even going to get into that whole mess. And at this point, the police are still chasing him, and the two right. and the two detectives that have been on the case since day one are now going after him. And then he winds up getting into an escape chase, so to speak, on a subway car where there's other Jokers in the masks. Right, because they're going down. If I remember right, they're going down to City Hall for a demonstration. Right. So Joker winds up escaping the police. Right. And the police are actually getting attacked on the subway car. Because if I remember right, they're trying to get through him. But obviously, uh, the crowd that is going to the City Hall demonstration, they're not not the biggest fans of the police right now. Right. And they're trying to fight through. They're just trying to put through. They're holding their gun up in the air with their badge. (coughs) Excuse me. And, And police let us through, let us through. And they get pushed back and shoved down. And one of the detectives' gun accidentally goes off and kills a man. And that's when all panic ensues. Right. So at this stage, he now gets to Murray Franklin's show. He asks Murray to introduce him as Joker when he comes on there. Mm-hmm. And obviously he comes out, and this has been the moment he's been waiting for. And his, and his stage manager or whatever it is is actually very you know trepidatious about letting him on because they see how he's dressed. Yeah. And they're like, given what happened today, I don't think we should do this. Yeah. Like, he's dressed like a clown. Clowns aren't the best thing uh, going right now. Yeah. But Marie is insistent, ah, he's fine, he's fine, just bring him on, blah, blah, blah. you know, just very arrogant in his own yeah, right. Yeah. So as he brings him on, they he says, all right, you want to start telling jokes, and Arthur starts doing his act until he just goes into what is the ending of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, I killed those three guys on the bus. And like, You can hear a pin drop. Yeah, Marie's like, what? And this is where this it gets to be like, you know, a, a commentary about the mental health because – he just goes, yeah, he goes, I killed him. And he goes, you know what? Nobody would care about me if I would get killed. But since they're Thomas Wayne's people that, you know, they're so considered upper class and, right. and considered, you know, better than, you know, the ones that are just, you know, considered throwaway people, everybody makes a big deal. Right. But, and, and the entire time he's telling the story, you can see the stage manager or whoever it is, you know, the gentleman who came in with Murray Franklin to Arthur's dressing room. Behind him, all out of focus, just miming like, "Cut it, cut it. We gotta go. We gotta cut. We gotta, we gotta end this." Yeah. But it keeps going. Well, because Murray keeps, you know, pressing him about it, and then t- to the shock of nobody—at least I wasn't shocked. Arthur whips out the gun and shoots Murray right in the head, uh-huh. point blank. Yeah. And it was not a, 
a they didn't hold back cutaway shot. No, no, it was as live in your face as you can imagine. And at this point, like I said, the the crowd is in shock, and Arthur is just you know going on and saying, you know, the whole thing is you brought me here to mock me and make fun of me, mm-hmm. you know, and for what? What did I ever do? And at this point, you know, he's he's just, he's getting arrested, and riots are now going and suing through Gotham, which I think where they tie into the perception is reality point. Right, is he's rescued by a freak accident. Yeah. That somebody hits the police car he's in and he's on top of a car hood. You see another riot going on. And at this point you see the Wayne's leaving the Zorro movie. Uh-huh. Which I mean if you know anything about the Batman history, as soon as you see the Wayne's leave a movie theater and Zorro is on the marquee, you know where this is going. Right. So as they're ducking down an alley to escape the madness, somebody in a clown mask shoots Thomas and Martha Wayne. Because I think at one point when they go to leave, like there's a, a tear gas canister or like a smoke grenade type thing lands right in front of the doors of the theater. So well, like it's all pandemonium. Right. So at this stage, he's subsequently responsible for the killings of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Or at least that's what he thinks. Or that's what he thinks. And this is where I'm tying everything into. Because during this whole point, he's on top of his ambulance or police car where he's bleeding and he makes the bloody smile with his fingers, yeah. a la Heath Ledger, and he's almost being, you know, ser- you know, serenaded by the crowd, yeah, like he, a hero, yeah, lauded like a hero. But then we go and we see that he's now at Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm bringing about this whole point, I'm trying to tie everything into. There's been so many discrepancies in his story that he's sitting in this nice, padded, clean, pristine room, right. He made the whole story up. See, I don't necessarily think he made the whole thing up. I'm sure there are certain parts of it that, to a degree, happened. Yes. But he embellished a little bit. Oh, he embellished because he tried making himself the hero of the story. Yeah. But even the points where he's talked about where he killed his mother and where he wind up killing Sophia, which we didn't even really talk about. Because there's that point where he goes and sits in her apartment yeah. and Sophie is saying, what are you doing here? And this is where we find out everything was fake concerning yeah. her. And then you hear screams and then an ambulance comes in when he goes back to his place. This is where you, ha- you have to say, okay, he tried spinning his own story to make himself the hero. Mm-hmm. But obviously we saw the truth was coming through. I mean, there's certain points. Like I say, when Randall was saying, you bought the gun from me. Right. I didn't give it. You know, there was nothing about the giving point. And then when you start breaking down about how he, you know he is basically serenaded as the hero, mm-hmm. how is he serenaded as the hero if all of a sudden he's in his hospital room and he's perfectly fine? And this is where he basically has taken responsibility for killing Thomas and Martha Wayne. But I yet I disagree with that statement. Right. And I don't think that happened. I think he wants to steal credit for it, that he was the inspiration for that. So he might have been there and he might have, you know, seen what happened or, or what might have what caused it. But he just wants to take credit for it. Right. Because he is so lost in his own madness. And this is like I say, the perception is reality through the eyes of a mentally ill man. Because I don't think in my in my opinion, my personal opinion, I think he made the entire story up and he took bits and pieces that he wanted to say mm-hmm. and just fabricated everything else. Right. So it's not really a real story. It's just his perception of reality that he wants to believe at that moment. Because as you t- want to tie it back to the Dark Knight, and I know there's no real connection between it, but it's like when Heath Ledger's character was saying the three different stories about how he got those scars. Right. 
this is like one of those stories that he's just telling that psychiatrist at the time. Which I couldn't tell if that was the same one that we saw earlier. In the, I the couldn't film. remember. Like I was sitting there trying to figure that out because I think at this entire point, he is making this entire story up. And it just shows about how mentally damaged he is. Mm-hmm. That we don't see him falling into the vat of chemicals at Ace Chemicals. No. We see him just being mentally unstable, which is the Joker to the degree. Yeah. That's the only connection you should have with a movie. But the fact that he's trying to tie it into that he was responsible for being the catalyst for killing Thomas and Martha Wayne, that he was the one that tried making himself to be the own hero of his own story, that he was suddenly the symbol of revolution in Gotham. You know, the city that couldn't give a you-know-what about him, all of a sudden, he's the greatest thing. Exactly. He's being you know treated as a hero on top of a cop car, being with everybody that's riding, protecting him. Well, it's like if everybody's riding, protecting you, then how did you get caught? That was another question I had. But as we wind up seeing him running out of his room with a trail of bloody footprints because he's now killed the psychiatrist, uh-huh. and he's running through a very clean Arkham Asylum or Arkham State Hospital, however you want to define it, we now see the true emergence of what we are going to say is the Joker. So that being said, Pat, final thoughts on the movie, or is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to touch upon? Not that, I, not that I can think of, just... Final thoughts, very disturbing, very crazy movie, but it was good. This tied into, and I've seen this posted a bunch of different places, to the Kings of Comedy movie, um, mixed it with Taxi Driver. That there is just so many elements of just one person's persona. Like, I didn't think it was. it's fair to call it a comic movie, even though it does tie in certain comic elements. It's tough to say that it is going to be the original movie. And I, I, I thought it was a good movie. I did like it. Um, for what it was, and like I say, it's just it's a very interesting depiction of a story. But I think I, I agree with the sentiments that Ron from 3FN was saying too, that this is all a made-up story. And there was elements that you saw him telling the story, and I think where you would see like the police showing up to come after him is where there was breaks where he was getting interrogated and didn't know how to react to the story. Right. Like when he's talking to the psychiatrist. I think you see different elements of that. Like For me, it reminded me almost like a fight club. That he's seeing certain things, but they're not there to the real right. audience. Overall, though, I thought it was a good film, and I take it as a film. I don't treat it as a comic book film. If this spawns off to where Joaquin Phoenix wants to play the Joker again, I'd be okay with it. Yeah, I'd like to see him, though, maybe go into a different direction and not tie it into this movie because I think this movie should be standalone. Yeah, I don't think there should be a Joker 2 in following his story because I think his story is he is the Joker, and just eventually he winds up falling into chemicals. That's the only thing you can tie in after this. I think that the movie served its purpose of establishing that mental health can really take a toll on a person and just take one bad moment to really push it over the edge. And I think that this movie is definitely worthy of the praise that it's been getting that for the performance Joaquin Phoenix does, I Mm -hmm. think it's good because he just plays such a troubled, mentally ill person. That's where I, I kind of stand it with. I don't stand it with a comic movie though, and I no. and I, I for me I just I can't like I just sit there and I took the DC part out of it because for him just the only tie in I have with that is he tried saying that Thomas Wayne was the villain of the movie and he took responsibility for taking him down. That's it. So essentially, he caused Batman. That's the only connection you should have with this movie. Overall, though, it's worth watching. I think at least once. Um, there's a lot of questions that be spawned from it, but like I said, this had such an Inception Fight Club type feel to me that I think the whole story was made up by him just sitting there talking to a psychiatrist at the end, and you saw what happened. 
So if they ever did a sequel, it'd have to be an entire, entirely different story. So that being said, hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPH. What was your thoughts about Joker? There has been so many great podcasts that have been covering it. I definitely want to interact with everybody about this. Did you love it? Did you hate it? And why? I liked it for what it was. I didn't like it as a comic book movie, but I liked it for a standalone movie. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Brian Wolf from Fair City Fire. You are listening to ODPH, the greatest podcast in Binghamton. Woo! Coming back for segment number two on this edition of the ODPH podcast. And let's talk some DC comic TV news, though. Uh-huh. Because we are finally back into the swing of things on the CW with our favorite shows. Yes. And obviously, the road to crisis is in full effect. And it's coming very quickly. It's coming very quickly. Now, Batwoman came out, and we talked yeah. a little bit about it. Thought the premiere was good. Yeah. Not great. Not awful. It's a good origin story. It's a good origin story. The second episode is kind of in the same vein. So still, jury is out on, on official opinion of that. Heard good things about Supergirl yet. I have to catch up on that. I have, I'll be honest. I've kind of fallen behind on that. So going into this week, though, I did catch up on The Flash, did catch up on Arrow's premiere and okay. second episode. Pat has done the same thing. Yes. So we are going to talk some spoilers on the road to crisis. Let's kick it off in three, two, one. Pat, let's talk Flash. Okay. So season comes back. Where's the vibe? What's going on? What do you think? I, You know, I think it's a good start. You know, the first episode really wasn't all that stellar. It was kind of another typical, you know, season premiere, nothing crazy. I dug the second episode way more, though. Second episode definitely did more for me in the sense of it kind of seemed like a direction that they're going in. Right. The season premiere just, I don't know, maybe I'm just salty about how the seasons have been the past couple for The Flash. I did like, I, I've loved The Flash show. Season one is great. Season two, even better. Season three, Savitar, don't care about. And I think it's a curse of the CW shows on on the DC. This is just where I think stuff starts falling off the track. And then to regain the momentum, they struggle to bring it back. I mean, obviously, season four was what, The Thinker? I think so. And then we had Cicada last season. So of all the rogues you can use in the Flash universe, yet again, you you don't have a main one. You don't have a Captain Cold. Right. You know, and we don't need a speedster, everyone. I'm no. not trying to touch upon that. But where they're kind of stretching this out going into this season, I feel that they're just kind of buying time to go to crisis. And what I mean by this is we obviously know the Flash and Arrow are going to be the biggest shows tied to crisis. Mm-hmm. Bar none. Oh, yeah. Bar none. Oh, yeah. So with that being said, where they're trying to go with it, a lot of changes happen. Cisco is now depowered, so he's still there. But he's, he's still there, but he know you know can't exactly vibe people from place to place, open portal to portal. But he's still got his smarts, and he's still a useful member. He's still useful. Caitlin has kind of now done a transition in her own sense. She's almost it's almost like she's coming to terms finally with uh, Killer Frost. Yeah, which, which is nice. Which, which has been long overdue. Ralph, we've seen, is now taken off on his own direction, mm-hmm. which I think is good because yeah. the one thing about the show is where it has been good, it has also been overcrowded with characters. And I think once you have such a big ensemble, people get you know brought to the wayside. And Ralph, 
obviously is setting up his own story. I do think they're touching upon where he meets Sue, mm-hmm. which I love that idea. Yeah. Um. So obviously him coming back in and kind of still find his ways, but he's more seasoned. Yeah. I think is even a better step, better way to take it. He's used to his powers and everything now. Yeah, he's very used to it. And as we're seeing going forward, I mean, the first episode was kind of a throwaway villain. It's kind, of, it's kind of just, you know, getting the ball rolling on the season. Yeah, because, I mean, the one thing about it is the whole cyber hacker who wound up building a machine that was right. generating black holes. Yeah. And, I mean, it was a fun episode. It was cool to watch. It was like, okay, moving on. It was a fun moment. I mean, obviously. It was stellar. Because the whole thing about what happened the previous season. I mean, like I said, we are talking spoilers on here. Would Nora wind up? Yeah disappearing and getting killed that right. we think and I mean but it made sense and it was it was good to see some grief and and trying to come to cope with things that at the outset they might have been like okay you're our daughter yeah right but now they're actually like going through the grieving process of like losing a child right so at this stage obviously was kind of a filler moment and the whole thing about playing the Flash Gordon theme I thought was funny <laughs> that was amazing that was, that was I was in stitches that was that was quite funny I have to admit about that and then as they're moving forward, though, obviously they're buying time until the monitor shows up, but they know that uh, the monitor has already kind of started tinkering around a little bit. So he shows up in like the last five minutes of the first episode going, ah, crap, here we go. Yeah, which, I mean, obviously he's kind of tinkered with um, Nora's you know, final words to Barry mm-hmm. and really trying to change what's going on in Crisis and basically now telling Barry that you know, you're know you going to have to die along with Oliver yeah. Queen, yeah, which is not setting well for anybody involved. No. Which, understandable. Can't argue that. No. So where they're going with this is they have now established a new villain, Ramsey. At least he's going to be it. Uh, the character's name escapes me, but the only thing we know is he's been using dark matter. Mm-hmm. And he has ties to Caitlin Frost that we really haven't seen too much about. Um, he's a newer villain on The Flash yeah. in, the, in the comics. So this is why it escapes me. But this is also another point that I it frustrates me as a, as a comic reader that you have better villains to use that are more established and, and have more of a history with The Flash than what you're seeing. And obviously, I mean, it's nothing from the actor who's playing the role. Uh, Sendhill Ramamurthy, who you might remember uh, being Sur- uh, Suresh, from Heroes. Yes, I did. And I, I, I love, love seeing him. Yeah. He, ah, no, so good. He's great on Heroes. He plays no. a great villain. Yeah, he does. But to see what his villain is this year, uh, like I say, I, I'm i not really sold on it because I think there, there are better villains I feel to like play. I, I'm sold on it just because from the standpoint of like, okay, I get what he's trying to do and I get where he's trying to go with it, but I feel like there's more to it than just whatever wicked twisted things he's got going in his head. I, I think it's great, and it's awesome. Like, oh, I want to cure cancer. Oh, hey, that's admirable. Yeah. But I need your dark matter to do it. Okay, never mind. Right, which it's understandable what he's trying to do, so yeah. I can't work. He's playing the villain Bloodwork. That's ah. what I'm thinking of. But like I said, Bloodwork is very new to the Flash sure. mythos. So doesn't really connect to me too much, and obviously he's got some ways to go uh, throughout the history. Uh, like I say, I want to see where he kind of goes with the, the character, and obviously – this is just buying time to Crisis, mm-hmm. and Crisis is going to dominate the Flash this season. Right. At least for the first half of it, which, yeah. I mean, like I say, I can't fault too much. No. And obviously last night's episode, as we were recording, had a lot more to do with Crisis. Mm-hmm. Oh, even some uh, Avengers Infinity War connections to a certain degree. Break it down. So, of course, uh, at the end of the first episode is where we see Barry and his and his wife, uh, Iris, are talk to the monitor, and that's when they realize, oh, hey, you don't have as... Because the entire time from episode one, season one, there's been that 
projection of the future with the newspaper that says, you know, Flash disappears in crisis. And the, and the timeline said like 2040 something, 2030 something, whatever it said. Well, now all of a sudden they don't have all that time. They've got until December because the date has changed from whatever it was to December 10th, 2019. And Barry goes, I can't go into this blind. I need to find out what happens. I'm going to run forward in time to the date after I disappear and figure out what the heck is going on. And on the surface, I'm sitting there watching this going, that makes sense. Okay. I don't know if you're going to be able to pull this off because I feel like the forces that be with the time stream or in, in the speed force are not going to let you through. And sure enough, he goes into the, into the tunnel, you know, where and goes running and all that and tries to go forward. And, and he's got a little earpiece. That's a mobile Gideon, which I thought was a cool take. And yeah, like, it was. Why haven't you done that sooner? My God, you could have used this. And she and Gideon's going, oh, you're at, you know, November 11th, November 12th, you know, December 1st, December, you know, you're coming up on December 11th and all that. And there's a there's a a wall there in the speed force that throws him backwards. And he goes, I don't know what I hit. I need some help. And that's when he goes to Earth three and meets with the flash from Earth three. Yes. Jay Garrick. He catches up with. Yeah. Obviously, a lot has changed since we last saw Jay. I'll say it's always good to see John Wesley ship on the show. Oh, absolutely. Mark out every time. Yes. And obviously, he is really taking, uh, you know, Barry's theory. He's not brushing off. He's like, I've noticed this happening as well. Mm-hmm. And they start digging into what Barry has been seeing and trying to figure out what's been going on. And I absolutely loved what was happening in this mm-hmm. because you start seeing Barry seeing the multiple universes die around him. Right. And you really start digging into what's going on right. with Crisis. Right. And, and you know, they start doing some, I don't know, research, looking with some of the equipment they have available. And, yeah, no, you know, Jay Garrick and, and his crew over there have noticed, like, antimatter flare-ups in some of the multiverses and some of the other universes going, all right, something's going on. Like, it's it might be understandable for have one every once in a blue moon here or there, but it's at a rate and a frequency. Like, all right, something's going on. Yeah, so at this stage... It really is showing that Crisis is taking its toll. Mm-hmm. And I did love the montage of Barry running and disappearing and disintegrating. Yeah. Because yeah. that is very much like what he did in the comic. But it obviously, it ties in with the Cosmic Treadmill. It's a long story. If yep. you haven't read Crisis, get on it, DC Universe app. What can I say? Um, but I did like the ties into it and like where they're giving this some real momentum and real gravity of how big this scenario is. So I did like uh, Jay Garrick's wife in this. My God, the twist of the knife and the feelings with that one yes oh uh the one the woman who plays uh, who's michelle harrison who plays thank you. joan williams was barry's mom barry's mom and and then is married to jay garrick in this or three so ergo you know th- some things cross universes that they're destined to be together yeah so i mean it was a nice little throwback and like i said i really liked what they had going on with yeah. with barry and really figuring out okay what's going on and tying everybody in together right yeah so they, they try to they try to figure out and he goes all right listen you tried to run through antimatter the only reason you're alive is because of your super your super fast healing any other person would have gone through that antimatter they would have been shredded in seconds he goes it might be possible though to f- put your conscience forward past that barrier and i'm sitting there going all right how is this going to work is this going to be like some x-men days of future past you're going to project him into like some other body type of deal we'll, we'll see how this works but he gets in there and he goes forward through it and that's where we get kind of like if we got uh, avengers infinity war infinity war uh perspective from uh dr strange 
during that whole sequence on the other planet where like he's looking for in the 14 million futures i feel like this is what we would have seen that's where you mentioned he goes through like billions and billions and billions of possible outcomes and that's when he comes to the realization the only one where people the only outcome where my friends and family live is where i die yeah so it really is an interesting take on it and i i like where they're going with it. And really for me, that was what the episode really drew. Yeah. Because everybody else's side stories, I'm just not buying into. Like the whole thing about Cecile is now going to be the defender of the metahumans, I think is a nice twist. Yeah. Kind of took a little while to get there, but I get that. The What's going on with Caitlin and Killer Frost trying to be normal? Yeah. I mean, it's I, I get why they're doing I, it. I, mean, I get you know, it. It's okay. Yes. So I get that, and I, I, I got to say, though, I do love Killer Frost, any lack of human-like decency. Where like you know she, they bring her to uh, an art show for the the girl that Cisco's dating and and there are a whole bunch of other artists there and she's just shitting on everyone yeah and I'm like oh this is awkward but it's funny at the same time yeah it was a truly because it's not even like a subtle like where you if you go to an art gallery you're like oh, I don't really like this no she's like full voice not even trying to hide it like this is awful this sucks yeah which I I do like that they're not sugarcoating anything no. with her so. No. Obviously, with Crisis looming, it's going to be nice to get everybody their own little stories because I have a feeling when Crisis hits that we're going to see a big cast shakeup on The Flash. Could be. And I got to mention, uh, I did like the attention to detail where they get ready to go into the art show and they inject her with the nanites or whatever it was from... Uh, uh, the hex's name uh brandon ralph's character oh ray palmer ray palmer they inject her with the nanites from ray palmer that makes it so her voice doesn't sound all weird and her eyes aren't glowing so that she'll blend in a little more i thought that was a nice detail because i feel like in some instances that would have been just something that like oh everyone conveniently didn't notice right no i I do like the attention and detail they've been giving this season so i mean to, to kind of bring it back tenfold Flash has started out very strong. Yeah. I mean, season episode two was a lot stronger. Than oh, season, season two one. was amazing. Or, or episode, episode two. two. Episode Thank two was very season. Two. But it did not take the crown of the best show of the week thus far. Or the biggest curve of the week. Which is Arrow. Holy crap, that opening. Now, there's been a lot of questions of what's going to happen with Arrow this season. Because and, and, and we knew that from interviews Stephen Amell has done that like there are going to be a bunch of episodes that are kind of homages to seasons past. Yes. And I didn't expect where they went with this because because it's a fresh take. And I love that it's a fresh take because what they did. And like I say, we are talking spoilers. Oliver was pulled out of the time stream by the monitor, which I completely forgot, which I I knew was going on. And obviously there's more ties into what's going on with Felicity and company. Right. um, That's going to happen in the current timeline. But right now he's hopping around earths as it appears which i feel like i could have used a little maybe that was in the last season on flash explanation and i missed it or i misinterpreted it i was thrown for a loop and was like wait why is this going on why is he here yes because as they start the episode he is reliving the intro of season one episode one Mm -hmm. where he's on the aisle in you and then all of a sudden you see this the shot of the mask with the arrow through it Mm -hmm. and let alone it's not deathstroke it's It's Batman. batman And that's clue one that, hey, something ain't right here. Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, what the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. And he does the thing where he re- he shoots the fire to bring the boat to the island to rescue him. And then he goes back home. Yeah. yeah. And everything is completely 180. Well, and, and to a point, though, because up until we get 180, outside that shot of Batman, it looks like what we saw in season one just 
some stuff we didn't see. Yeah. Because, oh, it's the media. It, you know, he's at the hospital getting checked out for diseases and, you know, injuries or whatever. And his mother comes to see him. And, and on the surface, outside that Batman helmet or cowl, this is like, oh, this is stuff we didn't get to see in, in season one. So outside that cowl, I'm going, oh, okay, this is, an, this is interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting to see what happened. Because, like I say, his mother is alive. And obviously, there's been a lot more changes going on in Starling City at this mm-hmm. point. That you see that there still is a hood. But it is not the Oliver Queen hood. Right. And and there's a hood. It's not the Oliver Queen hood. And, and at one point, he asks his mother, oh, where's uh, the gen- the gentleman who was dating his mother from season one? I forget his name. Oh, John Berman? No, 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 no. The the African-American guy who was like. Oh, oh, the, yeah. Ol- yeah, Oliver's stepdad. A stepdad. He goes, oh, where's where's he? And, and the mother goes, oh, well, he, he sold his shares off right after you and your father disappeared and the, and the yacht went down. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, and they explained that, obviously, uh, John John Barrowman is back as M- Malcolm Merlin, and now they've actually became married. Yeah, because, because in this Earth, as we find out, he's on another Earth. He wasn't gone for five years. He was gone for 12. Yeah, he was gone for 12. Thea has been killed from a drug overdose. Uh, vertigo overdose. Yes. Uh, we see that Josh Segura is playing Adrian Chase again, and he uh-huh. is the hood. Which, this was a weird portrayal. I don't know what it was, but just something about what the voice is real weird. Oh, he tried getting his Christian Bale on. Uh, yeah. He tried getting that Christian Bale on. He was sitting there trying to do the gruff voice, and I was like, oh, no. But as they're, as they're doing this entire episode, they're reliving season one. and I, They're reliving season one, and I love the portions of, like, you know, time travel. You send them back in time, and, you, and you're the person who knows everything. And, like, they're trying to figure out who the Dark Archer is, and he's like, it's Malcolm Merlin. But how do you how do you know he just appeared a couple of days ago? Trust me, it's Malcolm Merlin, and I'm I'm laughing hysterically because I'm like, oh, this is the guy who knows everything in the room. Yeah, but this is now the curveball of curveballs thrown because they got Colin Donald to come back uh-huh. and play Tommy Merlin. So good, and but he now was actually going to be able to play the Dark Archer. Yes, which has been long overdue to seeing. Yes, so obviously this has been a really cool point. And you kind of see the back and forth, and they just really sum up season one in 60 minutes, mm-hmm. which I thought was very cool and very interesting and nice right. little throw. Right. Because, I mean, obviously, you see Katie Cassidy playing uh, Black Canary, and she's, mm-hmm. you know, the real Laura Lance, and you see the real. It, she looked in this stage more like Black Canary than she did previously. Well, and she was even thrown for a loop. She's like, What are you doing on my earth? Yeah, like she knew something was up, too. And, and we didn't even know what the heck he was doing there until, you know, the monitor shows up, and, and you know, when he tells, you know, he tells him that, oh, hey, no, the Black Archer is Malcolm Merlin. I'm going to go talk to him. He goes to the office, and that's when kind of like time stops or some nonsense, and he's in the office, and that's when the monitor shows up, and that's when we find out why he's on that earth. Yes, because he has a dwarf star. For something. For something, because the monitor is planning the attack on the anti-monitor. That's the only thing we can guess at. But yeah. anyway, Oliver has his mission. But he is surprised to see a friend from Earth-1. Mm-hmm. The one and only John Diggle, a.k.a. John Stewart, Green Lantern, <laughs> told you since day one, um, who borrows something from Cisco, the time jump portal that they connect with Supergirl's yeah. world yeah. to get there. And basically, it's back and forth of Oliver. Right. Okay, what is going on? Yeah, it's funny. Like, Diggle tries to give Oliver the opportunity and, like, the benefit of the doubt. Like, all right, tell me what's going on. Already knowing what's going on because he's like, all right, he went to Felicity and goes, all right, listen, he's not going to tell me what's going on. You need to tell me what's going on. Absolutely. So at this stage, they're going back and forth about, okay, and Oliver keeps hyping up. He's like, I can't tell you, but there's a crisis. I can't tell you, but there's a crisis. That got a little old in the tooth for me. I'm sorry. A little bit. 
but because it, it kind of just goes back and forth to like the dynamic they've had. But I wasn't mad about it. It no. just kind of was like, all right, he really can't get into it, but it is what it is. Right. But you see this a lot in like movies and, and other stuff where like, it, you know, it's the hero trying to shoulder all the responsibility and do everything for them. And I got to be the one to do this. And all the meanwhile, you've got these these other characters and, and going, no, listen, you don't have to do this alone. Like, we're here for you. The thing I did love was the back and forth between them where there was the one point, I forget where it was, where Oliver goes, how did you know to find me here? And, and Diggle goes, because this is where I found you the first time around. Yeah. They just played off the first season and just where everything was in the first episode and first season of Arrow, that's where they went back to to solve the mystery. So good. Yeah, which uh, it's such a cool throwback. that They're going to do that for each episode this yeah. season. I'm on board with because yeah. I really want to see the takes they do. And the only other thing they had with this episode was the flash forwards to 2040 Mm -hmm. where you see Oliver and Felicity's daughter is now running Team Arrow 2.0 2.0 and what's going on there. I'm not so sold on that story. They're having some growing pains. It's going to be some growing pains, but I think they're really doing it because they're going to be pushing her as a major character because if they are going to be doing the Canary spinoff show. Uh Uh-huh. She's going to be a focal point of that show. Probably. That she's now coming to the past. And, I mean, obviously, time travel. That's weird. Comics, reasons. You're going to see a lot more of her story getting tied into crisis and her coming back. Yeah. So, obviously, there's a lot more going on with her story. The Destro gang was kind of a funny take, at least yeah. I thought. Yeah. Because, obviously, going into next episode, I would have to say safe money. We're going to see the one and only Manu Bennett. Oh, I can't wait. We're he's got to be returning next episode, if not can't by wait. season or episode three. But overall, though, this episode tied into the Earth they were on is destroyed. Yeah. They escaped uh, Black Canary, Oliver, and Diggle into the time stream. So we assume they're coming back to our Earth, right? Well, and that's the thing is they're at, you know, but the, he captures Tommy and Tommy's arrested and in in a holding cell or like an interview room and he's talking and yada yada and they go to leave. All right, we need to go back. He has a heartfelt or sad goodbye with his mother. She goes, "Oh, I'll see you later." And he goes, "Yeah." And they go to leave, and that's when you know uh, Black Canary comes running in, and they go, "Oh, you, we need your help. Something's gone on. And he's here or something." And they go, "Who?" And that's when you see this red light floating around outside the police off police department and that's when things start disintegrating a la like the the avengers and heroes in infinity war yeah and that's when they go uh we need to get out of here and and, or and uh, oliver's watching those he loved well at least the faces of those he loved all fade away in front of him and he almost doesn't want to leave and that's when uh black canary goes hey we need to go yeah so at this stage the episode was very strong for arrow coming yeah. back i loved it loved yeah. it really thought highly of it i mean like i said the only thing i could have done without but i'm not crying about is the flash forwards to 2040. I didn't mind it last season. I thought it was right. a nice, fresh take. I didn't really think, though, it was strong enough to keep everybody around, but it is going to be what it is because, obviously, wherever they transition Arrow into next season or next uh, year in 2020, because mm-hmm. if it's going to be the Canary spinoff show, they're going to have to build into it. And I'm really interested to see what the take is going to be with that because I think after Crisis, the stat quo on all shows are going to be changed so drastically. yeah. yeah. That if the Canaries are going to take over, they really need to establish every character and really make them have their own voice and stand out, which I think they can do. I'm just really intrigued about how they're going to end Arrow now on whatever note they do and then transition forward. But for coming back, I thought they had the strongest episode of all the shows thus far. Yes. Really excited to see where they're going with it. Hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPH. What was your thoughts on DC's CW return? What shows stood out? What shows didn't? And why? We want to know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
on a podcast. <clears throat> Sorry. On a podcast. Anyway, I'm going to start closing up the One Movie Punch secret volcano layer, and we'll meet you back at home. With a secret volcano layer. Wait, wait, uh, volcano layer, really? Uh, uh, with a secret volcano layer, one podcast host just can't seem to get a break. This October. Oh, what happened? Joseph is forced to survive by any means possible. Who keeps a parking lot full of wood chippers? In a serial audio drama of adventures. Blood. Blood everywhere. Fountains and fountains of blood. That can only be called Reign of Terror 2019. <laughs> Join us in October 2019 for 31 straight days of horror movie reviews and interviews featuring Joseph, the One Movie Crunch crew, 17 podcast guest reviewers, special guests, and me, your narrator, Shane Hyde. Don't miss Reign of Terror 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does this mean I missed Joker? No. Hey, this is Rob Kacharek from the band 607, Autopilot Off, and Walking Distance, and you're listening to ODPH. Coming back for the final segment on this edition of the ODPH podcast. Pad, what you got for those one shots? Got a couple things to talk about. Uh, first of which being the big anticipated release of El Camino, the Breaking Bad film, came out on Netflix last week. I have seen it. You have not. I won't go full spoilers. I'll do a mini spoiler free review. Uh, it's great. It is a really good film that uh, picks up right where the series finale ended. So Jesse driving off from the the carnage that was Heisenberg, you know, Walter White's death, and and it picks up from there. It's a great story. It closes the book on a lot of things. Wish they would have uh, filled us in on some of characters that, you know, I was curious about, but we don't find out about those characters. But given the story, it makes sense. You know, it's it was great to see some of the, you know, everyone come back. And it was, you know, Aaron Paul fell seamlessly back into that role, which he hadn't played in Lord knows how long, six years or more. Great film. If you're a Breaking Bad fan, I highly recommend you go watch it. So definitely give that a watch. Uh, other one is Disney Plus uh, on Monday dropped possibly the biggest Twitter thread in the history of all of Twitter by simply going, here's almost everything that will be on Disney Plus when it launches on day one, uh, which, of course, is the November 13th, if I remember right, in the United States. And they went through and for like three or four hours started posting in chronological order, you know, from when they were released almost everything that will be on available on Disney plus. I won't run through the full list. I'm not even going to give you highlights because again, we'd be here for three hours. Uh, the folks over at IO nine were uh, nice enough and wrote an article about everything that they listed in that Twitter thread that will be there. We shared it on our Facebook page. Definitely go give it a check out. There is a lot there and there's even some stuff that I wasn't quite sure if it was going to be on there. X-Men evolution and then Wolverine and the X-Men uh, that two animated series are going to be on there. 
you know, just some great stuff and some real hidden gems that I didn't think of. You know, there's some obvious ones missing that won't be there day one, such as I know uh, Solo and Star Wars The Last Jedi and then some of the Marvel movies won't be on there. But that's because they have deals uh, with other streaming services. The ones I mentioned, particularly uh, Netflix, mm-hmm. they are going to be on Netflix until the end of the year, if I'm not mistaken. And so then at some point in 2020, they'll float over to Disney Plus. And the same goes for some other ones that weren't mentioned. They'll be on there eventually. It's just they are on other services that the contract has to run out so that they can go back over to Disney Plus. Was, was there any on there that you thought should have been that haven't been named yet? Um, Not that I can think of. I mean, I'm, I know that at some point, there's going to be a lot of stuff on there. And I mean, you know, there's some TV series that I'm kind of curious about that. I know they made in house that will be able to be on there. And I know there's some stuff that wasn't mentioned that people are kind of wondering, like I know the uh, star Wars clone wars, the original one that came out in between attack of the clones and revenge of the Sith. It's very popular for some folks myself at the time. I loved it. Looking back on it, it's not that great. You know, people are really kind of bummed that it's not going to be on there. But the thing people forget is that was made by, Warner Brothers Cartoon Network, not Lucasfilm. So Warner Brothers slash Cartoon Network have the rights to that, not Disney Plus or excuse me, not Disney. So, you know, there's some stuff on there that I'm like, all right, that makes sense why it's not there. But by and large, the stuff they announced was just awesome. And I mean, I was I was showing my mom some of what they were showing and she used to work in a video department. Uh, back in the you know the late '90s, early 2000s, she she was like, wow, this is like a throwback to when I was in video. Yeah, I mean, obviously Disney Plus is bringing so much there, man. Uh-huh. It, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah, and El Camino. The only question I have is, did they explain what happened to Huel? Uh no. <sighs> that I tell you what, I'm going to do a minor spoiler. If you ever watched the Breaking Bad finale, he's the only character that they don't resolve. I think it's funny though. They, if I remember right, if you go to either the Netflix Facebook page or the Breaking Bad Facebook page, I can't remember what they did a promo video like anticipating that with him. Yeah, see, I need answers for that. So I think it was just like him in a, in an apartment someplace, like still waiting for the call. Like no, hitting a t- hitting a button on a remote, and it like went to like the El Camino logo, and then like a countdown thing or something like that. But no, he doesn't show up in the in the movie. No, uh, then I can't watch it. Then you should because it's amazing. <laughs> no, I'll definitely have to check it out. I love Breaking Bad. I mean, one of the greatest TV shows up. It, it's up there with me with The Wire. Yeah, Sopranos. Yeah, uh, obviously Game of Thrones. I. For, uh, like what can you say about Breaking Bad? It was it's about as perfect of a series as you can get with almost the perfect finale. Mm-hmm. Except they don't explain what happened to you. <laughs> I'm still holding out about that. I will say this though about El Camino: it does have possibly one of the most secretive scenes in film history, and by that I mean the work they went to to film the scene and make sure no word got out about this scene. And if you you've seen El Camino, you know which scene I'm talking about. Uh, it takes place in a diner. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, is nothing short of amazing. And the scene itself is incredible and, and one that fans will love. Yeah, definitely want to check that out. Um, and like I say, Disney Plus, I'm just waiting to hear about what they're going to do about Hulu Live. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. And I will, that's, that's the only package that hasn't been announced yet. I will say this for uh, Disney Plus. If you go to the Hollywood Reporter uh, website, there is a great article they did with Bob Iger and talking about like Disney Plus and how he came to that decision and when they realized, okay, we need to start going digital and streaming. It's a, it's a, I read it today. It's a great interview. Definitely have to check that out. All right, so for my one shots, uh, biggest one for me is Kevin Feige is now the chief creative officer at Marvel. Ooh. If I'm not mistaken, that's yeah, the official no, he, title. He's in charge of movies, television, and comics. Yes. So chief creative officer w- ruling over everything. Mm-hmm. 
So I am very excited about this move. I think it's a great move. Obviously, look yeah. at his track record. Yeah. He has, he's built the MCU into the juggernaut that it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's getting his hands on Star Wars, I can only imagine what's going to be tied in with that, if that is rumor is true. I think he's like either producing a film or directing a film. He's not getting control of Lucasfilm itself. Kathleen Kennedy is still head of Lucasfilm. But I think he's getting either going to direct or produce a film. See, the only other question I have now with this is what is going to happen with the live-action Marvel TV shows mm. that are currently slated? Because obviously Cloak & Dagger, we have not heard official word about Season 3 yet. Right. The only thing we know is Runaways was greenlit for Season 4, I believe. Uh, not that I've heard. I, that was kind of rumored and thrown on, but I haven't seen anything official. In regards to certain characters, I have read some rumors that po- certain popular characters like a Jessica Jones, like a Charlie Cox's Daredevil, like a uh, Punisher could be brought back with those original actors and actresses uh, into the MCU and, and into Disney Plus series. But other characters such as uh, Iron Fist and some of the other not so popular ones will probably end up getting recast. Well, see, what they need to just do is obviously listen to the fans talk. And I always preach about this is when you are talking about your shows that get canceled, get on social media, start making some noise really jump at that opportunity just don't be an asshole about it no don't be yeah be respectable be your fan like just do like if if you know freeform for example cancels a show definitely send a message saying hey you know don't cancel this give it another shot i really like the show i really would like to see another season that is fine but going at people who work on the show or actors or actresses and just being you know very expletive filled rude and obnoxious is not the way to go about it right so obviously some big news with that going on and like i say i'm really interested to see what is going on with the other shows like i said cloak and dagger i'd love to hear continue like i said i am pretty sure memory is i'm sorry i'm having like a brain blank right now that runaways was renewed for season four i'll look it up all right so you're looking up as i'm checking uh obviously what's going on with the hellstorm series they did do casting for it so that is officially happening for hulu as well the Ghost Rider show was canceled. I'm just curious what's going to happen after that. But if you really want to talk about a good fandom story, when I was at the um, Cup of Joe panel at NYCC, shout out to Marvel. That, that one, too, is an awesome, awesome show or panel with um, Joe Casada and, and Vincent D'Onofrio playing. There were representatives of the hashtag Save Daredevil movement there, and they could not have been better fans. And I know there was an event that uh, 3FN covered on their podcast about it. That's the type of fandom you want to be about that. And that's where you really want to drive that home, that if you really love these characters and love the actors and actresses who play them, get vocal about it and really drive that point home because you don't think your voice is heard, but it's heard. And that's where it really kind of digs into. We'll say based off of the information I can find, uh, Runaways has not been renewed for a fourth season. Okay. For some reason, I thought it got renewed in NYCC. I'll have to just double check about that. Like I said, brain blanking on this, folks. Apologize. But that being said, with Feige overseeing everything, Obviously, it's going to be a new dawn yeah. at Marvel. Um, it's going to be a busy, dude. Uh, you know, it's going to be busy, but I do like the fact that it's all going to be under one banner yeah. and, and under yeah. one person. So the vision will remain the same for every show. So there can there can now maybe be some cohesion and kind of interweaving references and stuff like that. That isn't just, hey, you remember the incident? Yeah, which I'm all for. And if they're going to be you know unified under that, I mean, it's Marvel One Universe, your universe, do it. And yeah. do it right. And yeah. the fans will be there and definitely bring back Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio. That's yes. all I'm going to say. Yes. And John Bernthal, too. Yes. And Mike Coulter. And, yeah, just bring back bring back the Netflix shows. 
Uh, Iron Fist we can debate about, but I digress. So speaking of Netflix, mm-hmm. now there is a, an announcement that was just breaking today. Pad, are you familiar with the comic series Bone? Nope. Okay. Bone is one of the true indie comics out there. It mm-hmm. was. Um, it's definitely a fun read from the 90s. Jeff Smith uh, uh, created it. And, I mean, it's one of, the, like I say, it's one of the indie books that really stand out. Uh, the story of the Bone Cousins and, you know, their their adventures through their world after they're kicked out of their home for, you know, uh, phony bones, uh, corrupt dealings. And it, you have to really jump into it. It's a nice general audience feel like you can jump into it if you love Disney, if you really love fantasy, it's something for you. Anyway, bone has now been signed for a Netflix deal. So the streaming okay. service is going to be working on an animated series. Um, as I'm reading from the Hollywood reporter, Netflix has required rights to the award-winning international comics and is developing an animated series and part of its full core press for the kids programming space. Hmm. So, and Jeff Smith is going to be involved with this. I'm a, I'm super excited about it. If you haven't gone down to go ask your local comic book shop about bone and they will tell you, I mean, it's a very simple book, but it's very good. It's very well done. It's one of the true indies out there. Um, and like I say, it, I mean, it's not spawned 301 issues, which again, congratulations to Todd McFarlane for pulling off that feat. That is insane. Yeah. And that book is going to set records every month it comes out. But Bone definitely stood its time in the 90s. Like I said, I remember reading it. Um, Like I say, it's just, it's a fun read. It's a fun read for fantasy. And it's a very simple thing. I mean, it's definitely done, um, it's due diligence. We're in some, a couple of Eisners in in its time period. It's a fun book. And just to see this come to live to Netflix, uh, it justifies me keeping my subscription. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Between that and Umbrella Academy. Right now, that's and like lost only two. In space. Well, yeah, lost in space. I got to jump on. I haven't done that yet. But that's a big news for Netflix. But the biggest news hitting the local comic shops. There's a lot of stuff coming out this week. We did post our usual uh, shout out for Net, Net, or National Comic Book Day. Uh-huh. Justin from Sound Around, Grace the Presence. Uh, he's going to be on the show kicking off Costober soon. We do have some more cosplayers coming on the show, which I I don't want to officially ruin the surprises we have booked. Ooh. But we have at least three booked right now. Cool. And possibly four. So stay tuned for that because Costober we are going to do, even if it's one week and we'll just hammer everybody out at once. <laughs> Schedules have been really crazy for that. But on that uh, post that we always post on our Facebook page, OchoDuroParleyR.com, you can find the link. Go check it out. The book of the week has to be X-Men number one. Uh-huh. Now, we have now completed Dawn of or Powers of or Powers of Ten. Yes. House of X. Yes. Everything is set up. Everything is in place to give you a quick summary of the past twelve issues. The entire timeline of the X Men have now been reset. Moira McTaggart has revealed that she is the mutant of all mutants, who has changed everything by exposing her mutant power of regenerating her life with memories intact in each life she lives. She is now told. Professor X, before he started the X-Men, the future of mutant kind. Professor X has teamed up with Magneto to unify every mutant on the planet under the rules of establishing a mutant nation and what it's going to take for them to survive and prosper. They have subsequently taken out the Sentinel program for now that we can tell. They have figured out a way to make Krakoa, the living island, a now sovereign nation. And they have now worked that has been recognized by the various nations throughout the world, for the most part. So their arm got twisted a little bit on that, but hey. Dealings that they've done. And they've now basically ensured that mutants are going to be immortal because they now have found a way to resurrect mutants. Mm-hmm. In a complete sci-fi way, 
that involves the mutant gold balls. I can't even get into it. You'll just have to read that issue. I just, I'm still blown away that they took such a throwaway mutant and now have made him into one of the biggest mutants in all of mutant history. The mutant nation has now a government that's ruled by, they called the Quiet Council. Mm-hmm. That's divided by four groups based off four seasons. I'm not sure what the symbolism of that's supposed to be, but the autumn group is the big three of Xavier, Magneto, and one apocalypse. Yeah, this is the group that, like, I wouldn't want to sneeze in their presence because they'll kill me. Right. The summer group is led by Storm, Jean Grey, and Nightcrawler. The spring group is an interesting one because that's the Hellfire Club. Uh huh. Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost, and the Red King, which we are heavily rumored, if it hasn't been confirmed already, to be Kitty Pride, uh-huh. which is going to be interesting. It's going to play out into the Marauders book. And the winter group, which I think is the biggest X factor of everybody, Exodus, Mystique, and Mr. Sassy himself, Mr. Sinister. Sassy Mr. Sinister. Yeah. So, obviously, this is going to be the governing nation of Krakoa. They do have field soldiers that are going to be the generals of every mission they run for the X-Men. And it takes Bishop, Cyclops, Magic, and the Gorgon, which, if you're not familiar with, was from the Mark Millar run of Wolverine. Mm. So, Jonathan Hickman has illustrated this fantastic, wild take on mutant kind and what they're going to take to survive in the future. And where they're going to go with the relaunch now is anybody's guess. And this is going to get very, very weird. It's going to get wild. Very interesting. Pat and I were at the panel at New York Comic Con for Dawn of X. Pat, what do you think was the biggest takeaway from that panel? Just all the curveballs they threw at us and and the gasps and shocked voices we saw with some of the stuff they announced and the covers they revealed and, and hinted at. Because it almost feels like every book that comes out, that's got X-Men in it is going to be a major thing and something that like, if you can't pick it up and read it, you might miss out on something. So you're going to want to read what happens online. Right. Because it's one of those issues that trying to catch up with every issue is going to be tough. Let's Mm -hmm. be honest. But powers of 10 really establish what's going on. And you really see how Moyer McTaggart, I'm almost wondering if that's really her now at this point. Mm. I almost think that's Cassandra Nova. Mm. I, I'm just telling you, I'm throwing a wild ODPH guess out there. Because I just see in Hickman's writing, as he's shown, that Moira has just been breaking down Xavier to buy into this image where his dream is no longer a dream, that it's a it's a shattered reality. And it's so interesting to see just the take Xavier has that you can't tell if he's been mind-controlled by somebody or he's just being influenced by somebody. We haven't seen him with that helmet off yet, right? which is another telling story, even though one of the promo arts that we saw at the panel was Jean Grey rocking the cerebral helmet. Well, that, they said there's a very deliberate and very, there's a reason she's doing that, and they made sure at the panel that they must have been listening to the show. Uh, yeah. That is Xavier. Like, there's no, oh, it's not Xavier. It's actually Person X. No, that's Xavier. Yeah, and there's been instances that have been alluded to that um, when Cerebro updates somebody's uh, personality and their memories into the its databanks, uh, Xavier has worked on himself mm-hmm. and blocked some things out. I don't really know exactly why that's going on. I mean, I, it's worked out so well for him in the past. Yeah, so obviously this cough, is kind cough, of... Gene Gray. It's a scary take he's doing. It's a scary plan for Xavier's dream, but he's willing to sacrifice that much to establish Mutant's Kind's future. So this also isn't the, the Professor Xavier we know. Right. This is a completely different one. Like I said, he could be mind-controlled by Sinister. He could be influenced by Apocalypse. Uh, I he's mean, not sassy enough to be mind-controlled by Sinister. That we know of. I mean, does there's so many different elements going on with this enough. book. No, not yet, but we don't exactly know if the sassy one is the one true sinister. Oh, yeah. We haven't exactly seen this. 
But going into this first week of books, there's a lot coming out. And, I mean, Marvel.com is a good story up. They're talking about launch parties. They're talking about different stuff going on. So if you get down to your local comic book shop, and I highly recommend you do, definitely check out X-Men 1 this week. Now, this is going to be the flagship book, and the cover is the entire Summer's family with Wolverine. Right. Don't know if there's a connection there yet. I mean, I'm not doubting anything yet. But going into this relaunch, there's a lot going on. I mean, obviously, Excalibur is coming out. That's going to be a huge book. They have the New Mutants relaunch, which is coming out. Ed Brisson's writing that. He's doing Ghost Rider right now, doing some real strong work. You have the Fallen Angels book, which I'm still on the fence about. I'm not going to lie. I need to read a little bit more. But after the panel from New York Comic Con, I was a little more sold. You have Marauders coming out, which I am now fully in on. I don't exactly know the direction they're going to take in, but it's going to be high seas action led by Kitty Pride and leading a pirate crew. It's an interesting take. I'm all for it. But the book that I think is going to be the best one out of the bunch, X-Force. Do you agree or disagree, Ben? Eh, probably. Yeah, Ben Piercy taking the CIA approach to the nation of Krakoa. Loving that idea, and especially when he does the next wave of mutant books coming out to you. He's leading off of that solo Wolverine book Yeah, with Adam Kuber drawn. Oof. That is going to be a monster when that comes out. Uh-huh. Trust me, folks. So definitely get down to your local comic book shop. DC's got a strong week, too, but Marvel, X-Men number one, that's what you need to go grab. The music you heard on this episode is that of Shout at the Robots. We actually decided to switch up the theme music. So Shout's going to be kicking us in every episode of the Entertainment Edition. We're going to close out with some new Shout at the Robots music. If you want to find out more about them, Floodlands, Honker, Walking Distance, Fair City Fire, all the great music you hear on the ODPH Podcast Network, you can go to OchoDuroParleyHour.com and hit on the music section. It'll take you to all links to their social media accounts and definitely go download some of their music. It's great stuff we have up there. You can also ch- check out hashtag seven podcasts you can find out about 3fn you can find out about horizon 607 all our affiliates you go right there it's one-stop shop click a lot of stuff going on there parlay points there's blogs happening all the time on there complimentary stuff to the show so in between episodes we've got a lot going on ocho duro parlay hour.com will also take you to the social media accounts use that hashtag odph because we definitely want to keep the conversation going in between episodes because that's all we got for this week. So for Padawan J. Thank you, thank you. I'm your host, Ken M. Thank you, as always, for joining us for the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>